the accident was not handled properly. Outside agitators came into the, to the community in Crown Heights and caused a lot of trouble. It takes but a match dang, when you got that dang, much gas for it to blow up. Part 3. The Matter of Trust As he's mentioned, for various reasons, Jeremy Kagan became a go-to director for scripts dealing with cause-based social issues. One of those films made in 2004, Crown Heights, deals with the violence and hatred that erupted between black and the Orthodox Jewish Hasidic communities in Brooklyn in 1991 in the aftermath of a traffic accident that killed an African-American child named Gavin Cato. The film is based on the real-life story of two young men, T.J. Moses and Udi Simon, from opposite sides of the conflict who found common ground through their love of hip-hop and worked together to use their mutual passion to diffuse tensions on the street. The movie reminded me of how often art-making shows up as both a trust bridge and a translator, not only on the battlefronts, but as a vehicle for telling the hardest, most unsettling stories. I wanted to hear more from Jeremy about how he uses his art to navigate issues like trust and believability in his films. One of the things I wanted to ask you has to do with that open ending. And one of the biggest issues, at least in in my work, has always been trust. And we probably think about trust as an interpersonal condition in real life. But in fact, anytime anybody sits through a movie, particularly if the movie is affecting, you have actually trusted the storyteller with your heart, your mind, your endocrine system. (laughs) You're in a powerful force field there. So in your movie, Crown Heights, which uh, set around the time that riots erupted in that New York neighborhood between blacks and Jews in the early 90s, you make really powerful use of some of those story tools you mentioned earlier, particularly at the end. Number one is the open end, which is there is no easy answer to what's happening in this film. And in fact, if you went the easy way, you would have lost your audience because everybody understands that story is still with us big time. The conflict between one side and the other side of those subway tracks. But that last scene where the art of the dance, where you have two young men actually transcending their cultural difference through a common culture, which is amazing. And then that extraordinary song that concludes the film. Could you just talk about that? Because it seems like you tapped into something, maybe serendipitously, that almost eclipsed the entire movie. It was so powerful. I think you're right. I think it did. This piece of music um, was written by Aaron Zygmunt. Um, who's a composer here in uh, Los Angeles. And one of my best friends is uh, Joel Sill. Joel's a music supervisor and, uh, and put the music for, um, from Easy Rider on to so many other major movies. Anyway, I'd asked him for an uh, idea for a composer for this movie. And I had this idea that the very end of the movie, we would have a piece of music that would mix two sounds. It would mix if you will, gospel sound and chanting Hebraic sound as well. And I I met Aaron and I said, can you write me a a piece of music like that? He comes over to my house. It was about a week before we're starting the shoot. And we put the CD on. By the time it's done, I'm weeping. And I turned to him and said, I think you've made something spectacular 
and gave me a challenge because I don't think I can make a movie as good as your music. I don't think I can do it. Now, what was interesting was, for me, while we were shooting, we didn't have an end. We were still playing with the boys. They'll be together. And that'll be some scene where the boys get together because at first the boys are separate at the end and then they'll come together. Maybe he'll arrive just in time for the performance that they, the group and Dr. Lyles the Cure, which mixed African-American and Hasidic boys together. He'll, they'll beat the two boys who were telling the story. They'll end up there too. And that'll be our end. And it would have been a closed ending. It would have been a happy ending. And but it just didn't feel right. And I remember sitting um, where I was living, and uh, Annika, my companion, was sitting on the bed and writing something. And she looked up at me and said, "What if they're separated in some way? Mm-hmm. Well, maybe one has to leave town or something like that." And I thought, oh, "Yeah, great idea. We'll use the subway." which is all through the movie, and I'll use that as a metaphor. And there they will be on opposite side of the tracks. They are no longer friends at this moment. They're no longer connected, and who knows whether they ever will be. And when they see each other, at first they don't acknowledge, then they do acknowledge, cross the tracks, and then they do this dance number that they've done, and everybody's looking around at these two guys, and they're in sync because they they remember you know the dance number. Train comes by. One of them's gone. Mm-hmm. Music starts. Mm-hmm. And I just, it won the Emmy for uh, best uh, music uh, for a movie that particular year. Mm-hmm. And here's the thing I often say to my students that all art aspires to the state of music. Mm-hmm. I'm mm-hmm. quoting somebody. And when you really think about what that means, is it means that music transcends the limits of the mind's judgment and goes right to, if you will, the beat of the blood and the beat of the heart. (laughs) It just does that. (laughs) Now, there's smart music and great hip-hop lyrics, and Bach is an intellectual, if you think about it, and there's no question about that. But great music goes beyond the word. It It goes deeper on some kind of almost physical, emotional level. So in a way, and you think about this too, by the way, if you think about silent movies, now not some of the movies that we now see that has music tracks, but if you turn down the music track and actually looked at the silent movie, you would realize in many ways 
it's got rhythm to it mm. in terms of mm. the motion inside the frame, in terms of the way there are cuts between the moments in a scene. It's got a whole feeling that is a kind of musical feel. Yeah, choreographed. So choreographed. Yeah. yeah. Charlie Chaplin once Absolutely. said, when sound came in, he said it was too bad. And he made some really wonderful sound movies, but he said, because we were just getting it right. Mm. And in many ways, reflective, and he was a, obviously a composer as well, of the musical nature of cinema. Yeah. Not the music yeah. that's in cinema. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the very kind of visual music that's in cinema. And I feel that um, that's something that we need to be aware of. And one of my teachers, uh, Frank Danielle, who actually got to me to become a teacher, he made his writing students study symphonies. Mm, interesting, made, you know, interesting. You now have to listen to Mahler's second yep, or yep, Beethoven's yep, yep. fifth. This is a narrative. But and it is. themes that get repeated and there's great tension and a high in the story and then there's times when it comes down and then rises up and picks up. Yep. And the other thing that's amazing about great music is that if you're in it, you will make the movie to the music. And it may be abstract and it may be representative, but after you come out of a great symphony or any great music, you've taken a trip. You have you you have been on a journey. I want to go with something back to something that you said about trust. Two things I do say to my students is you're not only directing your actors and your crew, but you're also directing the audience. What you do show or don't show is directing the audience and in the sense there's trust. But what I do say is that you need, with the people that you work with, to build a trust. This is particularly between directors and actors, because an actor is essentially exposing themselves. They're, they're, they're naked, whether literally or not, in front of a camera. They're, they're exposing themselves, and they can get judged. And the only one who actually is helping them is, in fact, you, the director. In fact, one of the famous theater directors used to say, director is the audience of one. The issue here being that if there's trust between the director with the actor, so I am giving you, quote, permission, unquote, to do whatever you're going to do. And the actor is trusting you in the sense that if I do something that is inappropriate, even though it just <laughs> flows out of me, you'll know that's not what we want to both do together. Yep, and you'll yep. say, saw it, but let's do something else. That's yep. the trust. And when that trust is going, it's thrilling. Because you're going into unknown territory, both of you, and yet you're going in there knowing that you, if you will, quote, got each other's backs. So that issue of trust is really important in terms of establishing that, and that's very exciting. Part four, harmony, hyperlocal, and the distance of the machine. So one of the core issues of our time is that if trust were a naturally occurring quality of society, we have a big-time shortage. And there's a lot of reasons for that. I think there are people that understand that they can actually cause people to fear people and institutions that have impact over their lives. Fear is a really powerful strategy to get people to do just about anything. Uh, But the other is that trust takes practice. I have no doubt in my mind that when all the king's horses and all the king's men come on a movie set and it's a new ensemble, new actors, new technicians, uh, there's a shakedown somewhere in there that will determine 
in many cases, the success or failure of your partnership. Because if there's a sense of of chaos or that somebody doesn't know what they're doing or that they're not to be trusted, then they're they're not going to be able to to deliver. And I guess what I'm asking is, and I, I ask this a lot of people involved in the creative process, what can the creative processes that require trust teach a society that needs to practice trust? Part of it is recognizing you're in community. One of the strange experiences for uh, new filmmakers, I've shared this with hundreds and hundreds of directors, that when you walk onto a film set, there is a community. And I remember the first time, uh, the end of it, I had this incredible sense of loss that I didn't understand. And the loss was we had created a family. Now, that family, there's a trust of, can you do the job that you said you would do? You're here because you're the sound person. You committed to being able to get the sound in this particular situation. So you delivered on what you said you could do, but you delivered it in community. And I think one of the things that's happened is we've had a dissolution. I'm not talking about COVID. We've had a dissolution of community. And we think we've established community through social media or through whatever we do and watching on television news. We think that's our community. But it's not because there is literally the distance of the machines. But when you're in a group where you're, I don't know, outside and and you're all talking about moving the problem on the street, that these trees are falling and how they're going to be taken down or saved or whatever it is. And here, all your neighbors are together now as a neighborhood and you're in a community literally having that physical presence. And when you enter a movie set, the physical presence. That's the possibility where trust can be built. And I think the example of getting together to do something, make a movie, solve a problem in your neighborhood, and getting together to do that, on local small issues and small groups, you begin to establish a trust. And I want to emphasize this issue of local community, because I believe that's going to be our solutions. to almost all of the issues we're facing from political to the global is going to be communities that really trust each other and feel compassionate toward each other and are open toward each other. So beyond the movie set, have you seen this happen in a way where it, I don't know, both moves the crowd and the needle on a particular problem? Or an issue. I talked to um, David Orr. David Orr is one of the you know, leaders in the in the issue of uh, uh, sustainability. It has been for thirty five years, and we were just about to try to get USC, this giant institution of fifty thousand people in Los Angeles, biggest employer in LA, which is a very unsustainable institution. Doesn't have solar, you know, waste problems, and facility problems, all the rest. And we wanted to really change it. And I said, David, you did this in Oberlin College, it's famous for it, and the whole city of Oberlin, a small little town, but started emulating what the university was doing, because the university built a number of buildings that are totally sustainable buildings, water, everything, gray water, the whole thing, solar, electricity, sustainable. How'd you do it? And David said two things. He said, one, get to know who the power is, and somebody will always know somebody who's in the power. But two, and equally important, Get to know each other. What do you mean? Get to know each other and have a party. I, I, I can't, what are you talking about? 
those people who are interested in making change in your space get together, hang out, and get to know each other. He said, do that. When you get to know each other and exchange and find out why you're doing what you're doing, whatever it is, then you can go advance an agenda because you will have built the community and you will have built, as you just said, the trust. Wow. So what happened? Did you go down that path and how did that turn out? And that's exactly what we did. We got a bunch of 20 people together and had wine and cheese and all the rest and talked to them. And now there's 500 people and the university is all the way to, to becoming an incredible sustainable place. It's taken four or five years, but it started that way. The other thing, though, I want to talk about is love and fear. I once asked this uh, guru, a brilliant, brilliant guy, and I asked him, what's the difference between love and fear? And he went like this. He said, fear is love upside down. Mm-hmm. Now, I didn't understand at all what he meant. It took me days to even sort of cycle it through. But I do understand in some way. If you do not feel you're in community, mm-hmm. you do not have that companionship. The loss of that, which is the loss of love, is the fear, meaning they're connected. And here's something I want to say. When we did this project for the National Institute of Health, trying to get people to avoid potentially having cancer, to encourage these people to take pap tests. Initially, we were writing scenes that, if you do this, you're going to get cancer. And this was fascinating and totally surprising to me. This was the pre-formative research on uh, making these particular short movies. The research was done is that people are more motivated by love. Now, when I say that, you you just don't you don't think it's true because particularly in our time you think no no fear is really what's motivating these people are going to come and kill us and i got to get my machine gun i mean that's mm-hmm. rather than the mm-hmm. other side which is we're all in this together we're all interconnected we're all sentient beings every one of us from the elephant to the you know, humpback whale to us to the people who politically don't agree with us they want to be happy too they want to be healthy, too. Bottom line, we all have the same wants. Dalai Lama makes it very simple. He says everybody wants to be happy. Okay, I don't know what happiness is. But we all still have the same you know, essential needs and wants, which makes us similar. It makes us also possibly to appreciate each other, which makes us possibly realize that we're surrounded and included, which is where love is. And that possibly is going to motivate us. And so we shifted our storytelling where the idea was, if you didn't do this and could get sick, you would lose the connections of the people that you love. You wouldn't be around for them. Yeah, that's what grabbed me in that piece with the abuela talking to the younger women and her family. All her worries and the back and forth just personified all the love and the connections that we all need. And here's the scene from that film when the grandmother and her adult daughter finally arrive at the local clinic. I'm not sure about this. But you agree. Well, I'm changing my mind. Oh, come on. I'm not going in there without you. No, no, no. Come on. This is ridiculous. A woman my age coming here. I don't know why I let you talk me into this. Mejor me voy. No, Petra, you're my best comadre. If something were to happen to you, pues para qué? I'm old. I've already lived my life. 
And if God wants to take me the same way he took my husband, who am I to get in the way? Ay, Petra, you're only 55 years old. That's young. God made doctors so that we could live healthy lives. And remember, you're not here just for you. You're here for your familia. This issue of realizing, that, honestly, the power of love and to be able to tell a story and that create characters that, in fact, are connected and things get in the way that break that and we want that to be reconnected, that means the possibility of being motivated because of our care, if you will, our love, as distinguished from motivated by our fear. There's a brain science lesson, that is, that fear is the lizard brain. And love is the prefrontal cortex where the empathy lives. And unfortunately, the direct wiring to the lizard brain is much faster. There's an amazing movie I have in my head, which is the, the first miracle was a group of humans, maybe Neanderthals, and they made a mistake in harmony in, in their voices. And they listened to it and they repeated it. And so pre-language, they understood that they could capture the attention of the tribe in a powerful way by creating something beautiful that touched the heart and the head at the same time. You spoke so well here because of the word of harmony, because in many ways, and I'm a musician, you're a musician, the, the very function of harmony is you're with others in the creative aspect. And that harmony is listening to others, very important, listening, and also being able to then create together. And you're not playing the same note they're playing. You're not. You're playing another note. But yep, together, yep. that note makes this beautiful harmonic sound. You know, a moment ago, you said you felt that our proximate communities, our, our neighborhoods, our barrios, our villages are key to us rediscovering common ground in this country. I'm completely on board with this idea that hyperlocal is not on the periphery, it's actually at the center of at least my theory of change. And that's largely because all those things we talked about, trust, authenticity, harmony, real-life experience, being accountable, once you get beyond a certain scale, those things really become hard to practice. And humans need to practice these things if we're going to manifest them in the world, in our institutions, in our policies, in our ideas, and particularly in our relationships with each other. So the question is this. In the Changemaking Media Lab, are there conversations about how do we create hyper-local storytelling environments, whether it's using media or other ways in which the stories we're generating, the relationships we're building, even the decisions we're making, actually become part of the fabric of, of our neighborhood or our, the small section of the city that we occupy. We're just creating a new version of this called the Changemaking Media Center to mm -hmm. do just that which is to see if we can uh, localize communities and get them to know that one of the assets they have is using media to both share, express, potentially convert. And so there is an effort. The difficulty is the nature of, and it's strangely enough, it really is, the nature of cinema specifically, because 
there is the distance. Um, we can create the community to make something. And then once it's made, it's out there. And the question really becomes, what kind of dialogue can you have? Because that's what community is. Mm, yes. With cinematic creations. And I think we're all still struggling with that. That You can watch something on YouTube and then with a commentary on YouTube off it. So there is you know, some kind of dialogue. I must say that one of the things that's been a gift of the isolation has been Zoom, <laughs> because there is also the possibility of dialoguing that way as well. So that you've got 50, 200 people all together also being able to participate in some way in the conversation. So I think we're all experimenting with a way to have the direct communication that in person is somehow communicated in the indirect way that any kind of cinematic form has. And I don't think any of us have found an answer to this, but we're, I think, aware that it is important and in fact one of the things that that for example we're doing as i said another one of these pieces right now uh, encouraging parents and, and to get their kids vaccinated one of the parts of the work that's going to be done is the follow-up yeah, you know yeah. once this piece is done it's going to be taken to various communities and questions are going to be asked the sociologists and communication experts are going to research what's working what isn't that's really important for us to continue to learn. For example, in the Latinx piece that we were just talking about, which was encouraging Latinx uh, community to take the exam, all of the characters are women. This showed to a group of Latinx men who had a kind of, well, yeah, it's a women's problem. And right. we were all shocked because we didn't realize that's an issue we have to deal with. And so the one we're doing right now, mixed gender, and, it's, and, and so it's going to be a different kind of experience because we're learning. Absolutely. How to communicate. So a couple things I want to turn you on to. One of them is, as you start to formulate your center, there's a place in Berkeley called the Story Center, which has as its uh, mission the worldwide dissemination of easy, accessible, user-friendly media for micro-storytelling. And you, if you go uh, to their website, Story Center in Berkeley, you will avail yourself of hundreds of stories where there's a community issue and here's somebody who's directly involved in that issue. And they become the, both the storyteller and the, the filmmaker in, in very short order very quickly. I wanted to share with you, and I'm looking for this, because it's a theater group that you may already know. It's called Playback Theater. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Do you know it? Playback Theater is a is a movement. Yeah, yeah. yeah. This, yeah, the, yeah. The, the guy who founded it is a relative of mine. He, uh, oh. John wow. It's an international movement. It's similar in a way to what you were saying, but it's theater. It's not cinema. But mm -hmm. the concept is you come as a member of the audience and you tell a story. And there are actors who are trained to be able to become right away the characters in your story, your mother, mm -hmm. your brother, your uncle, whoever it is, the boss. And, and, and you, in a sense, quote, direct it. As yep. they're doing whatever they're doing, you may say, no, 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 but now she goes over here. But the kind of cathartic experience for the, quote, storyteller, as well as for the people in the room, 
is pretty magical. Yes, it goes back to the origins of theater, when the community communicates to itself, actually learns from itself. And it reminds me of a scene from Art in Other Places, my first book that recounts a moment when John Bergman, director of Geese Theater for Corrections, was directing in a prison and created a playback scene, which is based on the visit. Now, the family visit is often the most critical and dramatic moment in a prisoner's life. And more often than not, they go ba- they go poorly for obvious reasons, because of the issues at hand and at the fact that nobody's in control of anything when it comes to that moment in their life. But often the prisoner, the, the incarcerated person, loses it. And so there's two wounds. One of them is, I'm missing my loved ones. They came to visit me. I made the visit terrible because I lost it. And so in the playback part of it, you have an audience of, if you can imagine, 150, 200 prisoners, and they freeze the action, and they turn around and say, okay, what's about to happen here? And then they say, how can we avoid this? Because you know what's at stake. And it is unbelievably powerful. That would make a wonderful Rashomon-like scene. Oh, my God, yes. Really, it's the same exact situation. It could be pretty magical. Magical and powerful, especially for the incarcerated men and women and their families who are caught up in that situation every day in prisons all across the country. So, Jeremy, I'd just like to say this conversation has sparked a bit of magic for me. I really appreciate your taking the time to share some of your stories. This is a beginning of a no longer conversation. I hope so. And I'd also like to thank our listeners as well and remind you that we don't really exist in the world without your participation, not only with your ears, but also as subscribers, which you can become by clicking on the subscribe button on your podcast app and sharing us with your friends and colleagues. I'd also like to remind those of you who are involved in some kind of training or advocacy in support of community arts or creative placemaking in your organization or community, Our catalog of episodes is now available as a cross-reference collection. You can use this Change the Story collection to share stories of how arts-based tools and strategies can help communities move the crowd and change the story around such issues as education, public safety, healthcare, climate change, and others. Check the collection out at artandcommunity.com forward slash podcast. We'll also include a link to the collection in our show notes. Change the Story, Change the World is a production of the Center for the Study of Art and Community. Our theme and soundscape are created by the incomparable Judy Munson. Our senior editor is Andre Nebe. Our special effects are from freesound.com. And our inspiration rises up from the mysterious OOP 235. So for now, please stay well, do good, and spread the good word. Adiós.